many ways, preaching Ezekiel is easy because you have no idea what it is because you've never read it before. It's a little tougher. This is God's Word. It's written a long time ago, but it was written with you in mind. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it hewn stones, for if you wield your tool in it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, your law is indeed sweeter than honey. May it be in this time that you would speak, that we would hear, that we would see Jesus, and that we would love you, the triune God. Help us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I did a little bit of digging into some of the great laws this glorious state has, still technically in the books. I already chuckled because you know where some of these are going. It always makes me laugh, right? Uh, Currently, as I understand it, again, I, I honestly didn't go into the actual law code. If you're in Lancaster right now, downtown, and you start dancing publicly, you are in violation of state law. How many little kids have, you know, broken that law, dancing on the streets when they're being silly? Currently, as I, again, I understand it, it's uh, actually part of the South Carolina law code that we must decry the evils of intemperance every fourth Friday in October. I I didn't know that. I mean, I I have a guess as to why that originally came out. I'm assuming it was from the 19th century, but I I, I don't know. Those are the good ones. There are a couple others that just made me really chuckle. It it is currently illegal to eat watermelon in the Magnolia Street Cemetery. And that's the one where I I read that and I was like, what? (laughs) What prompted that law? Like, what prompted? I mean, did you have... A rampant watermelon eating problem? I mean, so badly that you had to put it in state law? My favorite of all of them, though, is that it is currently illegal in the state of South Carolina to keep a horse in a bathtub. I know some of you need to go home and correct your situation. Find yourself currently out of bounds of the state law. Again, I love that because you're like... What's the story? Why is it that we have to have a law that you can't keep a horse in a bathtub? Did did we have problems with this at some point? Was there, again, a series of horses that were injured while staying in bathtubs? I love that because we look at those laws and we say every law has a story. And we always understand that. 
Every law has a story. And, and you see them sometimes when you go places and you see some sign and it's like unbelievably obvious, like don't stick head in wood chipper. And you're like, well, I would know that. But every sign has a story. Every law has a story. One of the great challenges of preaching this text is, one, it's so familiar, but two, is that I would suggest out of all of the texts in the Bible, this is the one that we probably forget the most, that it has a story. I mean, many of us were raised in uh, God-fearing families or parts of the country where this was maybe on a courthouse nearby or maybe not. Maybe it was in your school. I remember growing up in a public school not too terribly far from here where this was still posted on the wall of my classroom in third grade uh, at, uh, well, I won't say the name of the school, but public school. And it was so easy for us to think of this as simply a list of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. And in so many parts of this great country and the world as a whole, we have reduced Christianity to keeping this do's and don'ts, most of them being don'ts. So therefore, Christianity is no fun. It's the no fun league. You can't do these things. But in doing so, we reduce this chapter to something far less than it is intended to be. It's not intended primarily. That's the key word, primarily. It is not intended primarily to be a list of what you cannot do or what you must do. To see the Ten Commandments in such a way, you are missing the point To see the Ten Commandments solely as a list of what you can or cannot do is like seeing a lovely cheesecake and saying, my goodness, it's lovely. I'll leave it on the shelf so that I can enjoy its beauty. I'm sorry. The point of cheesecake is to eat it. Likewise, the point of this chapter is something far different. It really flows on the heels of chapter 19 and chapter 18. The Lord has brought his people out of Egypt. He's brought them miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle to Mount Sinai. And in chapter 19, we have the great turning point. You could comfortably say in many ways, the greatest turning point in human history up to this point. It's... Chapter 19 is where God says, I am going to meet myself. I myself am going to meet with my people to begin a long-running conversation. We are going to get to know each other. I mean, that's... That's staggering to think about, that the God who spoke creation into existence would begin this intimate knowledge of his people and his people knowing him. And unfortunately, so many of us, because we think of God as so small, that doesn't blow our minds. God helps the Israelites not get, kind of miss the point there, not get, that's not lost on them. In that he arranges the entire circumstance to be such that that the visual, mental, oral, the entire experience was designed to be overwhelming and mostly terrifying. He's brought them to the mountain. 
They've had to jump through, not hoops, but a lot of preparations. Remember, the entire nation's had to wash their clothes in three days. That's a, a kind of pre-modern marvel to get done in one water source. They've had to go through a purification process. And the day shows up, and when God arrives on the mountain, uh, Sean mentioned it in his prayer, the mountain was terrified. I love how the Psalms portray that. God shows up in the mountains like, nope, 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 I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. It's too scary for me, the mountain, to be here. That's how the psalmist personifies it. It begins to shake and quake. And the storm descends and you have thunder and lightning and you have uh, the way that chapter 19 describes it, a pillar of cloud that looks like a kiln. Think again, nuclear power plant and the billows of smoke coming out of it. And then the trumpet starts and this is a trumpet that is a divine trumpet. And I don't know what it sounds like when God blows a trumpet. I bet you it's a little bit more impressive than my middle school band. (laughs) And the noise started low and it built to a a louder and louder and louder and louder noise until the storm is at full throttle and then God speaks. And when he speaks, the trumpet doesn't matter. The thunder doesn't matter. It's not like me if there's a big clap of thunder right behind you. You can't hear anything. I'm saying, "Eh, that's not the way God's talking. Again, mentally staggering. And this God, this great and mighty God here in chapter 20 begins his intimate conversation with his people. And the first thing he leads off with are the 10 suggestions. No, not so much. He leads off with the 10 commandments. Because the Ten Commandments primarily, first and foremost, teach us who God is. The Ten Commandments are, you can almost view them as a series of illustrations explaining what is important to God. In education, high-end academics now, they're beginning to have this conversation about uh, curriculum, curricula, null curriculum. What does your school show is important by what they teach and by what they don't teach? Let me give you an example. If you go to apply to a seminary, to go to seminary to be a pastor, and they don't teach any Bible courses. It's not a good sign because they don't think the Bible is important. You know, if your seminary career is 48 credits of psychology and no Bible courses, you need to worry. It's giving you a lesson in what's important to the school. And here, God is giving his people a lesson as to what is important to him and what he is like. It's not simply a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of who he is and what he values. He begins anchoring it within that very framework. I am the Lord. That's his covenant name. 
That's him anchoring this entire conversation as God is sharing himself with his people. The Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Waffled all week on this illustration. I hope it helps. Maybe it doesn't. In so many ways, you can view this as a first date. Your first date, you maybe been a couple of decades ago. The whole point of the first date is you got to get to know the other person. And so you, you share information. And the information or the stories that you share hope to illuminate who you are and who the other person is so that you can figure out, is this something that we like? God is saying, look, I am your God and you are my people. First date, (laughs) those hint at the intimacy that's about to exist. In fact, actually, God created marriage to be a sermon in shoes to point to a greater reality, which is this. Right? Marriage is infinitely less intimate than what he's about to describe. I am your God. I have redeemed you. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Oh, yeah, all those miracles that you've been experiencing for the last you know, eight to ten weeks, I've been the one who's been doing that. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, destroying the most powerful nation on the planet, having the sea open up and eat them. Oh, yeah, the psalmist described that the sea ran from me, ran from me as well. It was too scared of me. That God. This mighty God, and then he begins to explain who he is and what is important to him. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the only God. If you're going to be in marriage relationship with me, again, covenant relationship. If you're going to be in that covenant relationship with me, it is monogamous. It's one. One God. No other gods. The only one. I'm a jealous God. He he's, sees this as being supremely unique because he is unique. He's not one of a pantheon of gods. He's not the like, you know, this is the one who figured out the clever power play to manipulate his brother and sister Greek gods. And was like, yeah, I figured out how to kind of, you know, pull some shenanigans and trick these people. This is the one great and mighty God. And the second commandment is one that has intrigued me for years. Because he introduces them to who he is. He's the great and mighty God. He's the only God, the only true God. And the immediate kind of thought process you would have, again, thinking we're outside of church context, would be like, well, that's a God I want to know. And it's intriguing that his immediate response is, you only know me on my terms, not on yours. That's the heart of the second commandment is to know God. It has to be on his terms. It's not on our own terms. And this is as un-American as we can have in so many ways. And again, as a preacher in larger circles, I get to have some of the most intriguing and hysterical conversations as people don't know what to do with a preacher. Well, that's not the God I know. That's not the way I want to do this. That's not the way I want to worship. I, 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 I. It's all about how I think about life. And it's like, well, that's not in the ten biggies. The second one is, if you want to know God, it has to be on his terms, the way that he wants, not the way you want. 
You don't put images. You don't try to reduce the invisible God to an image. You can't do a good enough job. Besides, he already did that as part of creation to say, if you ever want to know roughly what I look like, have an idea, you want to see an image approximation, just look around at who's next to you. Third, he begins to show again that he is so special, he's not to be taken lightly. Even to the point where you don't joke around about his name. Now, we all have had folks in our lives that were a bit maybe more serious or somber, didn't have a great sense of humor about themselves. And you, you joke about them, you maybe know this, you joke about them, but never in front of them. Maybe that was mom and dad when you were a kid or whatever. You joke, but never in front of them because they don't. The Lord here is actually articulating something much bigger than that. He's saying that he is so worthy and so noble and so lovely and so majestic and so true that his name is never a joke, for he is never a joke. And again, you want to think about just how damning it is in our culture that his name has become a comma or part of a part of speech that has no meaning. Tossed out lightly, just just thrown around like it's not important. And to the fourth. This is a hard one. Because this is the first one that for American Christians particularly is inconvenient. The first one shows us that he's the only God. The second one shows us that if you're going to know him, it has to be on his terms. The third one shows us that his name is not something to be taken lightly because he is not someone to be taken lightly. The fourth one is the first one that really begins to make demands on you. Because the fourth one expresses very much like the tithes and offerings. You don't belong to you because he made you. You're weak isn't your week. Your money isn't your money. Your life isn't your life. It's not all about you. God is entitled to make demands on you because he is your creator. And further, in this case, he's making demands on you that he himself has kept. That one day in seven... From the creation of the world until the resurrection was Saturday, and from the resurrection until the life to come will be Sunday. It is a day set aside for rest and worship. It is a day that belongs to God, and his people are to devote to knowing him. I don't again want to go back to that That dating illustration. You think about a a young couple that are, uh, you know, in the process of young love and are getting excited about the possibility of marriage and such. And as part of that conversation, the husband says, look, there's going to be one rule in the house. That no matter what happens, no matter how crazy life gets, with children that will be crazy, At least one day a week, 
we will do nothing but enjoy each other. That's what the whole day will be devoted to, to knowing each other and loving each other and spending time together. You think that sounds like a pretty good idea? I mean, that's pretty exciting, wouldn't it? I mean, those who've been married for a couple of, you know, decades or such, we've got a number in here that have been married more than 40 years. You you think about it, there are some seasons where it seems like just by the providences and the circumstances of life that God arranges it, where you don't get to do that for months or years at a time. Those of you that had many babies, young, very much in a row, you understand. I haven't had a good night's sleep in a decade. I don't know about hanging out with my spouse and doing nothing except being with them for an entire day, much less one day a week for the rest of, you know, the rest of creation. You see, God is explaining here that his relationship with his people, it's not a perfunctory relationship. It's not a relationship that exists, but we're not excited about. I use a South Carolina illustration. It's not our relationship with the federal government. I mean, we recognize we kind of have to have it, but I'm not really excited about it. I'd prefer it if they actually didn't do anything that, you know, had to deal with me. Or maybe even better yet, an illustration of our relationship with the IRS. I know we have to have taxes, but I don't really like paying. Unfortunately, I'm going to suggest that many American Christians, that's how we think about the Sabbath. We think about it as a day that's perfunctory. It's, we have to because it's like the IRS, it's like the federal government, it's because I gotta. And we've missed the point that God is explaining to his people, look, at minimum, I understand life is going to be busy. He's designed us to work and to work hard. But at minimum, one day in seven is going to be designed for that day to be devoted to intimacy with him. The Puritans would call it the market day of the soul. Because on other days, you could buy and sell virtually anything. You could buy all things that were needful for your body, but the day where the things that were available for your insides, well, that day is Sunday. God frames out. I love to, how important it is to him. It's not just you, is it? Love how he's so particular You, oh yeah, by the way, your son, daughter, male servant, female servant, livestock, sojourner within your gates. I can't wait to get to heaven to ask why he didn't include wife here, but um, I don't know. I can't wait to ask that when I get to glory. Sit at the Lord's feet and understand more than I do right now. He's framing out a relationship that is designed to be intimate and to be wonderful and to be filled with passion and joy and delight. Again, the better illustration of what we need to be thinking about this chapter is, is, and this is in so many ways, the terms of engagement for marriage. Paul's going to take up that same idea in a number of places, Ephesians 5 being one of them. We'll hear in Sunday school from Tom in a couple of weeks. This is framing out the nature of that marriage. 
But it's intriguing how God has not just designed something that's going to shape how we interact with him. He's not just revealing, this is the most amazing part, not just revealing himself to his people, but he's also revealing themselves to his people. He's showcasing how they are supposed to be. How they're supposed to interact with each other. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that you're... This is probably, you know, thinking through how the, the Westminster divines did it in their catechism. is This is saying it has a proper understanding and relationship to authority. Those above, those beneath, uh, authority structures are well respected and cared for. Murder, preserving life, not committing adultery, sexual purity, not stealing, working hard, respecting private property. 16, not bearing false witness against your neighbor, respecting truth. 17, the capstone. This is the one that is, in so many ways, the intriguing one. You can pretty much categorize it. You can quantify when someone's not honoring their father and mother pretty well, when they're being disrespectful or you know, a jerk at home or whatever. You can pretty much quantify fairly well if somebody's murdered or not. Check the corpses. Again, adultery, that one's pretty easy to measure. Stealing, likewise. Bearing false witness, did you lie or did you not? The last one is intriguing because in so many ways it's the caption. It's what this entire second table of the law is hinting at. It is a right ordering of desire. That the entirety of God's person, the entirety of the insides of them are to be ordered correctly according to God's commands. You're not covet your neighbor's house. Neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's. I love how most of those are connected to really wealth, pleasure, or ease. My life is hard. I want it to be easier. My life is not pleasurable enough. I want it to be more pleasurable. My life is not wealthy enough. I want it to be wealthier. And instead, God's saying your, your, your desires need to be ordered correctly. You know the Ten Commandments. That's, again, why I said it would be kind of hard to preach this passage. The, the problem with this, though, is that so many times when we... I made the joke already of saying the Ten Suggestions, uh, or in many cases in America, it's the Nine Suggestions. Uh, I've heard, actually, eight, but we'll leave that one off on another day. The problem is what we've done is we've, we've come to this text... And in doing so, we've unintentionally and kind of oftentimes subconsciously, we've taken the gap between God and man and we've narrowed it really small. We come to the text, and I've joked about it before, where we view God a bit like a superhero. Maybe DC, Marvel, or something of the sort. He's just God. He's kind of like that. A little bit smarter, a little bit more powerful, but just like me in every way. And when I come to his rules, I'll view them the same way that I view your rules. As mostly suggestions that I follow in front of you, but not when you're not looking. 
And the problem is, again, we, we forget the story of how these laws came to be. And usually we stop reading in verse 17 and forget what happens next. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet blaring, roaring, and the mountain is smoking, uh, Moses is so understated, the people were afraid. (laughs) No joke. The mountain was afraid. I think the people probably had a good idea as well, and they trembled. And I love, even though they've been invited to come a little bit closer, they're like, nope, 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 nope. We're going to stand far away. Moses, you go talk to him because that God is so scary. We, we don't want to be in his presence. You tell us what he says. I, I don't really, I don't feel like getting that close. Thank you. My, uh, my roommate in college, uh, one of, well, hallmates, uh, somehow, I don't know how he managed to do this. I think the school probably never figured out, but he maintained uh, pet snakes his entire career in the dorms. Yeah, I never understood exactly how he did that. But he would, uh, well, we would feed them by shutting all the doors and putting towels under them and let the snake loose on one end and the mouse on the other and just see how long it took. Yeah, I don't understand. Again, I don't understand. I also want to know how many of the babies managed to get out of the cage, but that's, again, another story altogether. But he, uh, they were non-venomous, but they had a terrible habit of biting. And so he would be like, hey, I need to clean the cage. Will you hold this for a minute? <laughs> no, I have no intention of getting anywhere near that thing because that thing is dangerous. I want it over there, and I want to be over here. And when you've got the cage clean and the smelly snake back in, and it's done biting whoever has been holding it the entire time, then I will look at it, make sure the cage is locked, and then I'm out. Healthy respect. I don't want to be there. I want to go between. Likewise, here, the people have the same idea. I don't want to be near that God. He is dangerous. We want to go between. The gap between God and man is so large. It's so huge. In fact, actually, uh, you turn to the end, it makes me chuckle. Again, we stop reading. The laws about altars, as the ESV titles it. You, hey, when you, when you go, these are kind of the way you're going to worship me again. You're not allowed to worship me any way you want. I don't care if you like gold and you want to make something pretty for me. You're not allowed to. I don't care. It's going to be the way that I want or not at all. Uh, in fact, actually, when you build altars, you're going to build them the way that I want. You're not going to use, uh, you know, tools to carve the stone, just stack the stones, put the offering on top. But 26 is the one that I think is probably my favorite uh, as a little reminder as to, again, how big that gap is. You're not allowed to put steps on your altars because when you climb the steps, the bottoms of your feet would be exposed to the altar. By bottoms of your feet, that was the way my family said, how do you know if a dog is a boy dog or a girl dog? Well, you look at the bottoms of its feet. (laughs) If you're wearing a loose-fitting garment and maybe don't have all of the undergarments that you would probably need under it, what's the Lord saying? He's like, look, the gap between you is so large. The gap between me and you. You can't put steps on your altar because you can't step up on them because I might see parts of you that you don't need to be showing to me. Because even though you're my creature and you're made in my image and I made you good, the gap is still gigantic between God and man. 
There's two responses to this. The people and Moses exhibit very different responses, and I think both kind of are important for us to think about. The people, they hear the Ten Commandments and they understand them. I think they get a pretty good grip on them. God is not messing around. He's not goofing around. He's not being silly. And they panic. And that is, I would suggest, the correct response if you do not know God. As we've already confessed with our wonderful confession of faith here, what particular use is the moral law, this is the Ten Commandments, for unregenerate men? It's to awaken their consciences to flee from wrath. Why? Because the previous question that said, what is the moral law for? It is to condemn you when you break it. The reality of the matter is that every person that walked through the doors this morning, if you have violated any one of these commands one time, you have earned hell forever. And if that was simply me telling you that I was going to punish you forever, you could laugh at that because I would forget, most likely by the end of the week. The problem is this is the great and mighty God who has done it. The one whom the mountain is terrified of. That's pretty serious. This use of the law is is supremely important to understand in evangelistic purposes. That every person who has violated any one of these commandments in any way, one time, has earned hell forever. And again, it doesn't take us maybe to be the most self-aware to know one violation is really not a high bar to jump over. I mean, if it was one violation this morning, maybe. This is ultimately what Galatians was pointing at. Why the law functions as a, a guardian, as an instructor, because it's designed to create that sense of panic. It's designed to showcase that if you have violated the law once, you have no hope of heaven in yourself. You are not good enough to go to heaven if you've broken it once. But as Paul says in Galatians, it's designed to point to the one that the promise was originally designed to showcase, the Lord Jesus. It showcases, these Ten Commandments showcase that God is perfectly holy and perfectly just and perfectly right. And he demands that from his creatures. And if they don't manifest that, then we deserve his perfect and eternal judgment. That's why Christianity is at its core dealing with sin. Because as God creates this marriage relation, this intimate relationship with his people, it's created on perfection. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam sins. Everybody sins with him. Does it here with the Ten Commandments? Everybody sins with him. His judgment is deserved. And then, again, to point to Christ. It's also why the cross matters. Because Jesus kept these perfectly. Never once. Never once had another God, never once had a wrongly ordered desire, never once said, 
false things about his neighbor, perfectly lived it so that he would satisfy the wrath of God. Now, I'm assuming most of us in the room, we, that's our story. Most of us would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, absolutely, that's my story. I, I lived uh, under the judgment of this law for many years until the Lord was gracious and His Spirit opened my eyes and I saw that Christ was the only way. He changed my heart and I have salvation in Christ. That's where question 97 comes in. In fact, actually, I really could have just given you these three and we've been done for today. You wouldn't have gotten the illustrations and not funny jokes, but uh, it would have covered the content quite well. What do the Ten Commandments mean for me today if I'm a Christian? Well, those that are regenerate, that know Christ, though we don't have to keep the law for perfection anymore. You don't have to. You're not under the burden of perfection. Christ has already accomplished that for you, uh, even though you still can't do it, and he's already gotten that. Your record is perfect. Yet, about halfway through, The law is to show us how much we are bound to King Jesus for him keeping it. (laughs) How much am I obligated, obliged to Christ for him keeping it? But then also, this is also in that last clause, it gives us the expression, the way to express our obedience and love to God. Calvin would say this is the primary use of the law. It's for the Christian to know, hey, I love God. He saved me. Christ Jesus died for me. I want to live in a way that pleases him. How on earth am I supposed to do it? Ten Commandments. I I want to have Christian liberty. I've been a slave to sin my whole life. I want to live in liberty. How should I do it? Ten Commandments. I want to live in a way that doesn't grieve the Spirit. How do I do it? Ten Commandments. I want to figure out how I can express my gratitude to God because I so I love Him so much. I'm so Ten Commandments. Because if you think of it this way, the Ten Commandments were designed to showcase God's values. So when His saints in the power of the Spirit of God, live those values, it's pleasing to him. It also, and again, the way the confession would do it, paraphrasing Colossians, it's conforming us to the image of Christ because Christ is the law incarnate. He keeps it perfectly, fulfilling it righteously. So what do we do with that? That's all the big theology stuff. What do we do with that? How do we walk out of here on a Sunday? Three minutes after I should have finished this. Well, I think it would be remiss to preach a sermon on the Ten Commandments and not at some point say, you know what, honestly, sit down and please evaluate your life. Because though your flesh would not like you to believe this, you are not perfect yet. Your flesh would love for you to think that you are. Because then your spirituality stagnates. Your spiritual development stagnates when you think you're already perfect. 
The Spirit of God intends for you to understand that you are still a sinner so that you are more in love with Christ and obligated to Him. Please spend a little time periodically thinking about how you violate these and which ones you struggle with the most. If nothing else, the tenth one should get us all. I mean, they all do, but a wrong ordering of desire. And then seek God's mercy that his spirit would transform us. It's intriguing, too, how in the New Testament, I'll end with this one kind of final point. The Lord highlights, Lord Jesus highlights, that you're going to be able to see his kingdom by observing the way that his people live. Do you ever think about the math for why that is? Like, what's the reasoning? Because the Ten Commandments illustrate God's values. They're designed to show who He is. And when God's people live in light of those commandments, they show the world, the God, who they love. It's weird to think about, but your holiness is key to your evangelistic purposes. It's one of the reasons why God has left you here so that you would grow in holiness and obedience and joy and love until he takes you home and takes all of the lingering corruption of sin away. May it be that we would rejoice in Christ and cultivate obedience by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. We love it. We ask that you would help us to love it more. Forgive us where we sin and we don't love you or your word or are so filled with self. Thank you for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.